grace and peace to you. I'm Vicar Derek Kabilis, and this is Exile Cast for Wednesday, July the 20th, in the year of our Lord 2021. Something odd happened to me last Saturday. And I'd like to tell you the story, if you'll humor me for just a couple of minutes. Because last Saturday was July 17th. And honestly, for me, July 17th is a rather uh, ignominious anniversary in my life. Because you see, on July 17th in the year 2012... I walked into St. Thomas Hospital on my own two feet, knowing full well that somewhere inside that building was a man with a saw, and that no matter what happened, I would not be walking out on my own two feet. In short, July 17th was the day that I lost my leg. And I'm not going to bore you with the details about why I I had a congenital condition. I had lots of surgeries on my ankle for a long time, so on and so forth. But that was the day. The day when I finally had to wave the white flag and, and, and have this terrible procedure done. And ever since then, July 17th has been kind of a black day. In my year, a a day when I would find myself ruminating on how badly it hurt and how badly it affected my family, about how much I had lost. Ever since it's been a day of anxiety and depression and nostalgia, it's been a day of pain. For me, July 17th has almost invariably been a day of morning and then on Sunday before church I came into my office that morning and I I turned the page on my day planner and I realized hey today is July 18th and the reason why that's so shocking is because this year July 17th came and went and I didn't even realize it It was just like any other day. And at first, I I was kind of mad at myself, to be perfectly honest with you. Like I did something wrong. I, I, I felt guilty. Like I dishonored the day by overlooking it. And then I realized that these past nine years, that day has actually been dishonoring me. Friends, they say that time heals all wounds. But I'm here to tell you today that's just not true. Okay? There are some wounds that we will necessarily carry with us our entire lives. I mean, think about it. Even the story of the resurrected Christ, he still has the wounds of the cross in his hands and on his side. I mean... If if he carried his wounds, why would we think that we wouldn't carry ours? Time doesn't heal wounds, but God. 
God knows how to redeem them. God turns the pain of our wounds into stories of triumph and grace. God dries them. God tends them. God cares for them. And then in time, God uses our wounds to tell the story of redemption and love. So if you struggle to believe that for yourself, then I invite you to take some time here today as we prepare ourselves to uh, breathe deeply of the ancient mysteries, so to speak, and give your wounds over to God. And then let God give them back to you, maybe not healed, but rather redeemed. Stick around. We got a sermon coming up for you. Today's passage comes to us from St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the second chapter. So then, remember that at one time you Gentiles by birth called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were, at that time, without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups into one and broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you, who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built upon the foundations of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone, in him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together, spiritually, into a dwelling for God. 
This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. I wish to preach to you today from the title, Yesterday's War. Yesterday's War. Please pray with me. And now, most holy and merciful God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O God, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So how do you know when a war is really over? Is it only once someone raises a a white flag or signs a, a, a paper with the word surrender written on it? Is it when the soldiers finally come back home and and begin to put their lives together and, and, and raise families? Is it when you stop hearing about it on TV? Or is it only over when everyone says it is? Did you know, for instance... That even though almost every history book in the world says that World War II ended in 1945, the final peace treaty between the Allies and Germany was not signed until the year 1991. Or you may have heard, uh, if you took Latin in high school, you may have heard of the Punic Wars. These were the battles between two ancient empires, the Empire of Carthage in northern Africa, and of course the Empire of Rome, which took place over more than a a, a century, um, the final battle of which was more than a hundred years before the birth of Christ. Yet... An official peace treaty was never signed until I was two years old. 1985, when the mayors of Rome, Italy, and Carthage, Tunisia, signed a treaty putting the 2,000-year-old war to bed. Neither one being an empire anymore, but the war was still on the books, even if it wasn't in people's minds. And then there's the story of Harao Onada. At 22 years old, Harao Onada 
was a second lieutenant in the Imperial Army of Japan. And in 1944, his unit was sent to Lubong Island in the Philippines to gather intelligence and carry out guerrilla warfare against the United States soldiers who were stationed there and, of course, the Philippine Commonwealth. Shortly after landing, his unit was attacked and all but Onada and three others were killed or taken capture. Now, Onada was a good soldier, well-trained. He came from a family of soldiers, an inheritor of the ancient tradition of the samurai. He would sooner commit ritual suicide than surrender to the enemy, so he in his men being well-trained, armed to the teeth, ready to survive, they decided that they would carry out their mission as long as possible. Of course, in October 1945, Japan surrendered, but Onada and his men stayed in the hills of Lubong Island, carrying out guerrilla attacks, getting into shootouts with the Philippine police, but they always retreated back into the hills. The Allies eventually dropped pamphlets uh, all over the jungle saying, look, Onada, the war is over. You can come out. We're not going to hurt you. We just want to take you back to your family in Japan. And they wrote it in Japanese. But, but Onada found a mistake in the Japanese grammar. And he decided that that meant that they must have been allied tricks. Now, over the years, the other men with him lost heart and uh, turned themselves over. Some got killed by local police while they were out on their raids. But Onada refused to surrender. For a time, actually, everyone thought that he must be dead because it had been so long. But then every once in a while, a rice field would get burned or someone would throw a hand grenade into an empty barn, or a farmer would get shot in the leg, and everyone wondered if old Hiro'o was still in those hills. Finally, in the year 1974, an adventurer named Norio Suzuki found Onada's long-retired commanding officer back in Japan and brought him to the hills of Lubong Island. They found Onada in the jungle, and together they convinced him to surrender. When they found him, he still had his sword, his rifle, 500 rounds of ammunition, and dozens of hand grenades. In the years since the war had officially ended, Onada had killed 30 Filipinos and burned hundreds of acres of land over and over again through the years. And I'm left asking, 
How much damage do we do to one another? Fighting wars that are long since over. For he is our peace, writes St. Paul. In his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace and reconciling both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So in order to understand Paul's words here, you really have to understand something about Paul's uh, first century Jewish imagination. You have to understand uh, that that pre-Jesus, Paul was uh, formed by ancient Israelite culture, ideas, and ideology. That is, being a Jew himself, being a Pharisee, being a rabbi, in the strictest sense of the word, Paul was raised with what we call a dualistic sense of the world. Do you know what I mean by that? That that when he looked out at the world, he saw only two options, A and B. In fact, he didn't just see two options. Um, he, He saw two races of humanity. The pre-Jesus Paul saw two fundamentally different types of humans. On one hand, A, you had God's chosen people, right? The descendants of Israel and Abraham, the ones who were predestined to be God's own family on earth, to follow God's law, to be God's nation, to obey God's commandments as God's children. That's what he saw when he looked at his own people. When he looked out at the ethnoi, the nations, he did not see people like himself. He did not see some diverse uh, tapestry of other cultures and, and languages and ideas and ethics united by a common human nature. No, when he looked at at the ethnoi of the world, what he saw, all he saw, were non-Jews. All he saw was them, the other, those people. See, Paul was raised by his culture, his family, his religion to see the world in terms of us and them, the the good and the evil, or, or how did he put it right there, Lydia? The circumcised and the uncircumcised, right? 
It doesn't matter what they might call themselves, be it Roman or, or Greek or Persian, Babylonian, Canaanite, who cares? They are just them. They attack us every chance they get. They oppress us. They hurt us. They tax us and colonize us and enslave us. And, and you want us to take the time to differentiate between them? No, says the first century Jewish mind. No, thank you. All I need to know is that they are not us. They will never be us. They cannot be us. Because only we get to be us. Are you picking up what I'm saying here? Even the name Gentile comes from the Latin gentilis, which means the clan. And that's singular. What clan was it again? The Medes, the Parthians, and the Elamites? Oh, who cares? What's the difference? They all look the same to me anyway. It's just one clan. And it wasn't that Ephesus, the city that he was writing to, was a Gentile city. It was the Gentile city. It was the capital of all things Gentile. Let me put it this way to you. If Ohio was Israel and Columbus was Jerusalem, Ephesus would be Ann Arbor. Okay? Um, or even that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because you still have Wisconsin and Notre Dame and Nebraska. Now, in this time, there is only one enemy, the Gentiles. And they have one capital in the city of Ephesus, the crossroads of the Gentile world, the port city where east meets west the center of trade and finance and culture and unclean food and everything that is not Jewish. So imagine then his surprise when 30 years later, Paul would find himself writing a letter to a church in Ephesus. A church he himself helped plant back in Acts 18, if you remember. And, and this letter was encouraging them to see a higher truth, to see a different truth. That God had made both groups into one. That God through Jesus Christ, had broken down the what was supposed to be eternal dividing wall between them, between Jew and Gentile, between Israel and the ethnoi, the clean and the unclean that he had in himself, in his own body, blood, spirit, and soul, reconciled both groups to God. And out of two humanities, created a single humanity. Can you imagine how embarrassed the old Paul would be by the new Paul? 
Can you imagine how angry the old Paul would be? The, the Paul that, that made his name railing against Gentile influences in Judea. The old Paul that was famous because of the way he persecuted the church as a, as a bastardization of the, the Jewish faith. And now he's actually writing a letter to a Gentile Jewish church in the capital of all that is unholy and wrong and unclean. But you see, that's what Jesus does. Once Christ gets a hold of you, he takes all the battles that you think you are fighting, all the little wars that you think you're supposed to be, to be waging, all the, the conflict that gives your life purpose and meaning, and like that old Japanese soldier in the hills of a Filipino island, he finds you and tells you that the war has been over for a long, long time. See, that's how you know you've got it. That's how you know this Christianity thing is finally starting to take root. Not when you are embarrassed by who you used to be, but when you can imagine your old self being embarrassed by who you've since become. Why? Because you're no longer willing to fight the wars you used to fight. You are no longer willing to define yourself by the same dualistic fantasy by which you used to give yourself an identity because you are no longer a soldier in a battle that ended 2,000 years ago on a hill called Calvary. Oh, well, okay, Derek, that sounds nice and all. But just which battle are you talking about? I am talking about all of them. I don't care if you're talking about the battles in our families and friends. I don't care if you're talking about the battles on our Facebook, on social media, in our culture, in our churches, between our churches, in our politics. It doesn't matter if it's Jews and Gentiles, Romans or Carthaginians, the Israelites and the Arabs, the Americans and the Soviets, the Republicans and the Democrats, the rich and the poor, the black and the white, the smart and the stupid, the good and the bad, the light and the dark, they are all done. And the only reason why we keep fighting is because, like Onada, we are too scared and angry and paranoid to believe Jesus when he tells us he's already made peace. 
You see, that's the thing everything, everybody forgets about the cross. That it's not just about us in God. It's not just about a kind of vertical reconciliation that happens between individual humans and their God, but it's also horizontal. The reconciliation that it makes between us. I don't know how to keep reminding people of that. I mean, the symbol is both vertical and horizontal, but we still don't get it. We talk a lot about sin being put to death on the cross, and that is true. But it's only part of the gospel. Here, Paul says that hostility, the hostility that we have for one another, the hostility that we think divides us into to, to two humanities, the the, the hostility that turns us against brothers and, and, and sisters and neighbors and friends, the, the hostility that, that gets between the peoples of the world, that hostility has been crucified with Christ on the cross. I think that's what John meant. When he said in his letter that if anyone says they love God but also hates their brothers or sisters, is a liar. That is, the peace that we have made with God necessarily incarnates itself in the peace we make with others. Let me say that again. The peace we make with God necessarily incarnates itself in the peace we make with others. I, I, I want you to say it with me, or actually say it after me. I'll split it into two parts for you. The peace we make with God... Necessarily incarnates itself in the peace we make with others. The peace we make with God necessarily incarnates itself in the peace we make with others. Try the whole thing. The peace we make with God necessarily incarnates itself in the peace we make with others. Boy, that's really great. Now, what does that mean? Well, when we say that Jesus is God incarnate, we mean that, that Jesus is the physical manifestation of God. Incarnation is what happens when you put meat on spirit, right? Uh, the, the peace that we show in our lives, the peace that we show every day, the prayers that we offer to our enemies, the good we do for our persecutors, the, the patience we show for those who annoy and frustrate us and, and anger us and enrage us, that peace is the enfleshed love that we have already received from God. Even while the rest of the world still imagines that it is at war, 
The other day on Facebook, I saw a post that I see all the time. And it's, it's everywhere. It, it, it had a little cartoon, and underneath it said, Everyone is fighting battles you know nothing about, so be kind. You guys have seen that one, right? Now, that's good. Uh, it's fine advice, I suppose, except that it also happens to be incomplete. Our job isn't just to show kindness to all those soldiers who are fighting their invisible battles. It's also to declare to them that the battle they're fighting is already over. Our job in the world is to become that old retired officer who, who walks out into the jungle of the world in his suit and tie to find an old friend and to say, hey, bud, the battle you've been raging in the shadows for years and years, it's already over. We've already surrendered. And I'm here to take you home. That word, surrender. Even now, after giving this whole sermon and spending my life in Christianity, surrender is still a word that, that grates on my ears, you know? There's something about that word that is just... Uh, revolting. We've always been taught to never surrender, to never give up, to fight to the end. But here's the thing. When you've been fighting your whole life against God or your neighbor, even against yourself, the news of your surrender is joyful news. It is good news. It's gospel news. When you've been fighting so hard for so long, only to hear that this whole time you've been fighting yesterday's war, and it's a war that Jesus has already won, well, that turns surrender into victory. These words I offer to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So in the years after Hiro'o Onada's surrender. He moved to a Japanese community in Brazil. He married a woman, raised cattle, and eventually he opened up a school in Japan called the Onada School of Nature, a place where children could come and learn about the natural world and how to take care of it, how to survive in it, how to find peace within it. See, Onada's surrender was not a defeat. 
it was a release. A release from the slavery of perpetual combat. A release that finally gave him the freedom that he needed to figure out who he really was and what the real purpose of his life was all along. I say that to say to you, it's not too late. Consider the wars you've been fighting for far too long. Consider the weight of those battles on your life, taking your time, your mind, your energy, and your spirit. Now consider what you could do. Consider who you could become if you just gave up. After all, the war has been over for a long time anyway. And now may the love of God, the grace and peace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you and be with you, now and always. Amen.